netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for taking the time to download our podcast this week. I'm John Montgomery. Subject this week is the third film in the Maze Runner trilogy, Maze Runner The Death Cure. It's once again directed by Wes Ball, who's a longtime friend of FX Guide as well as FX PhD, where he actually taught a course called Secrets of Paint and Roto years ago on the site. This film, the third in the series, actually opens up some time after the Scorched Trails film, centered around Thomas and the Gladers chasing after Wicked Train, that's how the film opens, and involves them breaking into the walled last city, of course a city controlled by Wicked as well, in order to rescue Mino and other captured children. It's really an interesting discussion. Some of the stuff the guys reference is part of the podcast. Talk about things that were talked about in our previous two podcasts. We did a podcast on each of the other Maze Runner films. So if you want to check those out, check the podcast article for links or do a search on our site for Maze Runner. But let's go ahead and cross the discussion. They talk about the effects and other things in the film. Weta did the majority of the effects in the film. But here's Mike Seymour chatting with director Wes Ball. Hey, so uh, congratulations on the film. Yeah, thanks, man. I really, uh, I really liked it, and uh, I, I had um, just—I uh, mean, obviously, I was looking forward to it, right? But I was really sort of struck by how big it seemed. Like it yeah, just sure. seemed like yeah. you'd got a huge amount of, um, I guess, scale in it. In just uh, yeah, there's a lot of scope to. There's a lot of visual scope to it. Plus, it's it's a real unwieldy story in terms of like just the scope of characters too. So it kind of—I think it's all those things that makes it feel kind of big, for well, better or worse. Yeah, but also I think just from a framing and cinematography point of view, like uh-huh. just in terms of the way that it well, was you know, actually, not closed yeah, in. Well, you know, actually, yeah, I actually took the – going into it, actually, one, I had IMAX in the back of my mind, and two, um, I actually decided based on the second movie, I wasn't going to do a lot of close-ups because I always find, like, when you go to the theater and suddenly you see that close-up, which you used to see on your TV screen on your monitor, it feels too close. It's like It feels like t- television. You know what I mean? Hmm. So I actually made the conscious decision a lot of times to hold back a little bit and let shots play in one. I think that it gives it that feel, you know? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, it must have been that, but it was more than that. There was also just some of the wide shots and some of the like environment yeah, work. Wide. <laughs> it didn't feel like, you know, you were kind of, I mean, without sounding in any way rude, it just felt like you must have had a mega budget. And I can't imagine right. that you did have a, an unlimited budget. But no, no, we're still pretty small. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing about these movies is all three combined cost probably less than most tent poles as a single movie, you know. So it is sort of always that trick of how do we inject some some scope and scale of these things for sure. But you know, we did a lot of fucking, you know, aerial shots this time too. Lots lots yeah. of drone shots and um drones were a big time thing on this one. It's the first time I've really used them and we did a ton of those, which is, they're interesting shots, you know, it's like, it's not a crane, it's not a helicopter, it's something else, you know, so it's a really fun tool to play with. I'm kind of anxious to keep pushing that a little bit in the next stuff. Yeah, yeah. I also liked the way that um, the film managed to pay homage to the entire trilogy without looking like yeah. you're replaying old gags. And that's you know, a challenge, man. <laughs> it's tricky. Because you, you kind of want... I mean, the fans think that they want all the old gags and then it becomes a greatest hits yeah, and no. it's got less it's soul. True. yeah. So it's, it, that is a real challenge too. And that's, that's something that even started in the second movie 
you know, some book fans were a little bit mad I took things out, but it was exactly that worry. It's like, sounds good on paper, <clears throat> but as soon as you start just rehashing old ground, it feels repetitive, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a tricky thing to, you almost don't discover it until you film it and watch it in a run. So I'm, I'm real kind of aware of that. So we, we decided that, you know, early on to come up with some clever ways to, you know, it's, it's definitely, there's no doubt about it. The movie is kind of catered to fans, you know what I mean? Hmm. So they want to see the griever. They want to see some form of a maze and be reminded of that thing and the glade and all those things. So how do you weave that all into that tapestry? You know, it was, it was a fun challenge. Yeah. I guess, uh, the other thing, leaving aside the opening, uh, train for a second the other thing is there never felt like there was um an action piece in the sense that mm-hmm. in some of the james bond films even james bond films i really like yeah let's go, take okay, a pause now, and do yeah. an action scene and go back to the story yeah. yeah and so when they were trying to get through the tunnel for example right didn't feel like okay well now we're just going to have to have this crank scene and when it's over we can get back clearly all the guys aren't going to die that didn't feel like that it felt like okay we're on a journey and where's this going um, yeah, rather yeah than a side I, think, story. I think it centers around that that central spine, which we start. We actually decided on when we we're doing the second movie that this is going to be a pretty simple plot movie about rescuing their friend, you know. And and uh, actually, a lot of book fans were really pissed off at me that doesn't that doesn't happen in the book. Um, but we knew we needed a really good carrot to dangle in front of these guys. And as soon as you have that, everything else kind of hangs off that. So like you said, going to that tunnel, it's just an obstacle in their way to get into the city. But hopefully it's also a story point. It's like it's the last you can imagine if there was this city. And I had this kind of fascination, this idea of the migration of people looking for that last thing of hope, you know, flooding into this place and becoming out, you know, just outnumbering things that at some point in this decades long thing that happened, um, this event you know, there was a checkpoint that got overrun. That's kind of what that was about. I don't go into it, but that was kind of the sort of inspiration, the visual storytelling of that whole sequence, really. You know, and also to, we had to remind an audience from two and a half years ago that maybe was loosely remembered the second movie that there are these things called cranks. That's affection is is, is an important part of this story. You know, to set that up once so that we can get into the story stuff. You know, so. It's kind of a, you know, it's an interesting, it is kind of that little stop in particular. It is a little bit of a, there might have been a way to not have had that scene, but it was also kind of a fun adrenaline shot, you know. Um, I think if you'd done it, you couldn't have not had it because otherwise it's like, hang on a second, what happened to all the stuff in the yeah, second film? Yeah, they drive. Um, yeah. And also you wouldn't have had the payoff in the uh, lab scene at the end. The other thing I was going to say though, in that same James Bond sense, um, the train escape felt exactly like a classic kind of yeah. little Bond yeah. um, novelette that you get before yeah, the main title that yeah. makes you go, oh, I remember this. I love this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I hear that a lot actually. And I always actually kind of – I had two things in my mind. It was Return of the Jedi, you know, which is really that – that first 20 minutes is really its own thing. It's like it's go to say re- rescue Bond and Solo, but – the story of the last return of the Jedi doesn't really start till after that sequence, yeah. the job of the Hut sequence. And then second was the uh, last crusade. Um, you know, <laughs> thinking about the trilogy movies, you know, it was kind of, those are my two that I kept putting up on the board, but you know, there was something fun about, you know, we needed some scene that kind of, you know, reintroduce all our group of characters. It kind of was a little microcosm for the, the story as a whole, which is a rescue mission brother friends where, you know, this small group of people have to be sort of, sort of, you know, be clever about, um, you know, succeeding against this kind of unstoppable force. You know what I mean? So it, was, it, came, it, it rose out of that. And then 
it's always fun. We've always, all these movies, we've always had these little cold opens, essentially, where you're just kind of thrown in the middle of something and you have to catch up and then title hits and then the movie begins. You know what I mean? It's just this one's a little, a little bit longer and more involved than what we had done previously, you know? I think the other great thing is you want to be able to, uh, in, in this sort of movie, root for someone, right? And yeah. so you can establish they only just got by the skin of their teeth, but they are the underdogs, but they are, you know, in the old school sense, heroic. Hence, we yeah. can root for them. Hence, I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah. See, if you see characters wanting something really badly, hopefully that there's some empathy there that you kind of connect on that, that journey too. Yeah. So on the visual effects point of view, um, obviously, you know, Weta, uh, one of the dream facilities uh, in the world. Yeah, totally. I think to, am I, for my money, best in the world. It, it's, it's not a slam dunk though that you can always get Weta because, I mean, Weta is yeah. Weta, right? Um, yeah. Did you? Yeah, we got lucky, I think. Yeah, and you had some scheduling shifts, of course, because of stuff that yeah. happened. Was it ever at risk that you weren't going to be able to do it with Weta? There actually, when, when we had the delay, there was a tiny bit of a risk that uh, I think a little movie called Avatar was starting up mm. or something. <laughs> uh, four of them, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? But yeah, there, there was a little bit, of issue, but it, it kind of it kind of worked itself out. But you know, I, we had a lot of the same guys from the from the Scorch Childs movie that when Weta came on board. You know, Chris White over there at uh, at Weta, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I know that uh, I've talked to the guys and they they enjoy these movies, even though we're kind of you know small potatoes con- considering what they are usually doing. Um, but I think they enjoy these movies because the kind of variety of work is a little different, and it's it's almost I, you know Chris kind of mentioned this to me that it's almost like straight comp work these movies. There's a lot of CG, of course. It's not like, you know, transforming robots or you know, um, you know that kind of stuff. It's it's kind of it's supposed to be straightforward. You're not supposed to know this is an effect shot kind of stuff. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so it's but kind you, of fun. You for were them, still clocking in at what about a thousand effect shots? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think 900 is what I remember, something like that. You know, it's somewhere in there. So. Maybe I can ask you about a few of those and I'm going to yeah. go for some of the, well, let's start with the most delightful one, which is I understand that the, uh, the how can I put this, the negative nose <laughs> was something you wanted, yeah. Yeah. didn't think you'd get and managed to get it yeah. in the end. Totally. It's amazing. So it's like, you know, for all, for next time, Chris, if someone tells me you've got to put tracking markers on their face, nope. <laughs> so we had shot, you know, I had this, this concept image of this, this um, Walton Goggins plays this kind of basically crank king and i love the idea that this movie was going to be about kind of the virus and all that stuff so i wanted to have one character that was sort of from the the major universe in the books um who, who he's he's famously kind of known as mr noses and he's just this kind of crazy guy in the books that kind of says nose got my rose nose got my nose or rose got my nose blah 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 so um so i had this concept sketch with you know walton essentially and half of his face was gone so he's kind of slowly turning into one of these infected crazies and uh, and he had no nose to kind of pay back the thing for the fans and i just felt like man we're never going to afford this uh, you know we're we're you know we're, we're already pushing the boundaries i think in terms of the scope and scale of the movie already and uh and it just got to the point i started looking at the shots and it's like guys can we just do a test can you tell me it's like we were actually, I was actually cutting shots before that, so we were kind of saving money in places, and and I started taking a look at it, and man, they really, I think, you know, it was amazing work, really good work, because I mean, they had to track his face by hand, essentially, you know, and not just track a hole in his nose, but they had to track his lips, his cheeks, and figure out all that motion, and and then obviously do all the comp work of kind of integrating it, and it was cool because we didn't shoot it like an effects shot. It has this kind of really 
I think, you know, kind of straightforward, don't pay attention to me kind of feel to the shots of, of him with his no nose that, I don't know, are really cool. I don't know if I would have come up with otherwise. I, I'm not sure. It, it, yeah, it's so relaxed in its reveal as opposed to the, you know, close-up shot and he turns his head. And, and that was it. also, you know, like, you know, that profile shot is actually the, probably the first shot where we kind of see something's wrong. Yeah. And it's kind of not obvious because usually you would, you know, save the reveal completely for he's in shadow and then yeah. walks out into the light. And <clears throat> there was just something cool about that profile shot where it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> something's weird there. You don't get a full view of it, but something's wrong. And then for the next shot or two, you're kind of looking in, leaning a little bit closer. What's going on in there? Until finally, you know, the, the payoff is he finally reveals the full, you know, full Monty, you know. Yeah. Now, the film wasn't extensively previsd, was it? Like you had some uh -huh. previs, I think, from proof on like the bus escape and stuff, but not everything. Yeah, some stuff on the bus, which you know, and the stuff on the some stuff on the train. That was it. Yeah. I mean, it was. I have a tricky relationship with previs. You know, I think it's all very valuable on top of all the departments it is too. But I always find myself invariably, I can't do the shot on set, or something doesn't work, and you just kind of end up throwing it out anyway. Um, so plus our time frame on this was just insane. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't, I, we didn't end up doing a lot of that stuff. We just kind of made our way through it with, you know, on set essentially, you know. So what is, is that fun. technique for you? If you don't have previs, are you old school storyboards? Are you sketching stuff out on an iPad? I mean, like how do you actually work that out? Yeah, sometimes it's storyboards, but um, like, I don't know, we'd have to have an example to kind of talk about it, you know, but... Well, let's um, say the attack on the, uh, the, the city at the end, right? You've got, you know, the... Yeah, that's totally the, made up on the spot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All that, that's just basically what's kind of fun about it is that, you know, say, say that riot scene, for instance, when the riot kind of yeah. starts, right? Um, they, they kind of come out and... Um, all of a sudden, uh, there's, there's an explosion, and then there's, like, there's there's a rhythm to it, you know, that I knew I would always always talk about. So I'd sit in the room with all the department heads, and I would just pitch them the scene. You know, here's what needs to happen. You know, here's visually what we want to happen story wise. And then we'd sit there at the at the location, and we'd start figuring out how to just choreograph the actual event. Right? Don't think about shots. Just think about the event. Okay, we want a bus to come around this corner here. It's going to be on a cable. It's going to be on fire. And we're gonna, you know, right after that. You know, we're going to have a bunch of cop cars drive up and they're going to line up right about to here. Have one car come a little bit more forward right here. And I'm going to figure out what my actors are doing over here in a second. But there was like an approach to it where it's like, let's just create the event first. And then like news, you know, uh, you know, newsreel photographers, we would sort of catch the action essentially. Right. I thought it would be a kind of a cool way to, to, to achieve it because I had four hours to shoot that scene, that entire riot scene. So does yeah. that put more pressure on your editing team because you're finding those beats in the edit or does it give your edit team more flexibility because they're not kind of locked into a formula? It's uh, a good question. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of shoot everything this way. So, <laughs> so it's kind of like I have a good idea of, okay, I know I want to be on Dylan, you know, and I, I know I want to push in on his face, you know, before we do the reveal of what he's looking at, you know. So there's, there is a rhythm to things that I'm already planning on set. Okay, right. but compare but, that riot to the train, which was previous, right? And uh, an effectsy. So I think your editors were Paul and Dan, right? Yeah. So that one is definitely previous, um, and it's just kind of as by total necessity, right? I mean, yeah. And that previous started while we were in Vancouver, so that we could figure out we had in Vancouver we had no train tracks, we had no train. Yes. Um, it was kind of crazy. Uh, 
so that's where that kind of came out where it's like, okay, I need a shot that, you know, reveals the train. So, you know, one of the, the first key shots for me to come up with was how you reveal that train. And so that's where that shot comes in where it's, they're coming down the hill with the truck. You know, we kind of just get ahead of it in the car as it kind of slides in front of us. Camera spins around to do basically a, I mean, it ends up basically doing a 320 shot. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not quite 360. And then, you know, kind of comes in and slams in. There's the train, you know, and then follow the truck all the way around. And, and that was our shot. Um, so it's figuring out where can we go achieve this shot. And we found the airport that we ended up shooting that shot in. Although, you know, small, small weird thing is that shot ended up being completely replaced CG. There isn't anything in there that, except the, the sky in the background uh, that's not CG. In there, but, which but is from crazy. an editorial point of view, were you, and I'm not being derogatory, but like, was it more like, okay, I'm piecing this jigsaw puzzle together and I've got all the bits in the train. And whereas in the riot, I'm like, okay, what, what have we got to work with? Or uh, by the time you get to editorial, you've got it clear in your own head anyway. Yeah, I think there's a, there's definitely an element of discovering it in editorial. But even even with that riot where we're kind of making it up, there was a couple key shots that we know we needed. Everything else is kind of filler, right? It's how you stitch it together and what you kind of think you need to tell that kind of story and make it kind of suspenseful. Like the drone shot, we knew we wanted that shot going overhead of that, that riot as you see the, the crowd come in. Yeah. Those shots are obviously kind of planned and we know we need this shot. So let's make sure with the event that happens, we have a drone here ready to get this shot. And then we had you know four other cameras placed to capture different things. Okay, you guys stay on him, you guys stay on him. And then, you know, you're going to be covered in some way, you know, but there always will be those little happy surprises, which is so wonderful is when you get these shots that you just weren't expecting, you know, that feel really raw and just happen to be captured. And that's stuff you just can't, I find I can't plan, you know what I mean? So I had a technical question for you. The, the film has obviously evolved over a number of years as, as they would have been a trilogy. Um, when we get to the sort of uh, dream or nightmare bug griever sort of sequence that, yeah. you know, okay. So that's done with today, Manuka, with, you know, new complete tech compared to where you yeah. started. How much did you notice like the advance of tech when you, because you've got some shots like those that are, you know, you really... Uh, not doing the same shot, of course, but the same kind, kind of, of new thing. versions yeah. of the previous movie. Yeah, right, right. Do you notice like everything's easier, better, faster, or is it sort of the same? Well, well what I noticed was, you know, it's a different team, obviously. Yeah, so we had Method on the first movie. I think Sue was doing it when she was up at Method. Yeah, That's right, yeah. And they did a great job, you know, especially for being, you know, we were a little 30-minute long movie that, on that thing. So that was the real challenge on that movie was, you know, how do we pull this off with such limited resources? And that usually meant shot count. You know, you have three shots you can mm. use, you know. In this case, when Weta came on board with the second movie and even the third one, there really wasn't the, the pressure of you don't have enough money in the bank, you know. It was more of what do you need? And we have such a short time turnaround. Make sure that you, this is what you want and you're not kind of finding it along the way. But I did notice an agreement in particular with them on the second movie where I had just one shot, a real subtle shot that I wanted to do. It wasn't even like a full close-up of a griever, but it was there in kind of silhouette. They had to take the old model, and I think they ended up kind of re-rigging completely, starting over from scratch. But I did notice that I felt that the textural quality of the griever face himself was actually better. Uh, there, was a, there was just, uh, you know, uh, what is now renowned for their kind of, you know, skin mm. and all that kind of shading stuff. So I did notice a difference there, but it uh, wasn't something I felt necessarily other than just, you know, um, trying to be efficient with our, with our, with our time and, and resources, you know. The, um, the city itself is 
a really you know huge production design exercise in building a sort of plausibly desirable nirvana that's going to get wiped out. Sure. Was it clear in your head what all of that was going to look like? I mean, I'm just trying to work out like from production design point of view. Again, have yeah. you got it mapped out, or are you finding it in 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 the production? Yeah, I think. Well, the the big kind of conceit was okay. Our movies have always been. Um, like you said, plausible, I guess, uh, as plausible yeah. as a giant maze sure. can be. Uh, but the idea that, you know, they drive real cars, you know, there's not sci-fi cars, no flying cars, you know, even the, the, the sort of sci-fi bird, the, the, the kind of helicopter ship they have is, it feels kind of like something that could be there today. Um, so we knew the city had to follow suit. Like I, I knew it was the comparisons of Blade Runner were going to be pretty obvious. You know what I mean? Just kind of what you just kind of see in the book with kind of billboards and, you know, drones and stuff like that. So my, my thing was, how do we just make this feel like a real city? It, you know, but it's just, you know, maybe 100 years from now or 50 years from now. And so, you know, we knew we weren't going to go into super kind of production design, just building design, you know. Uh, we did want to give it kind of a, you know, a futurist quality, I guess. But, um, and so after that, you start taking your cues from your location, right? So at first we were in, we were in uh, Vancouver when we first started shooting this. And uh, obviously, you know, there was there was an accident on set. We might as well get that out of the way. Which made us shut down for a year. We just had to um, reevaluate what, how we we're going to approach things and where we we're going to shoot. And that led us to Cape Town, where we basically reshot the movie, um, starting over. And Cape Town, that city there, it has a particular feel. In fact, all South Africa does. Even Johannesburg. There's there's a quality to the building design, the architectural design, that I found really kind of interesting. It's kind of um, it's kind of very modern and and there's, there's, a, there's a heavy seriousness to it, but not like in a right. way of like a, you know, brutalist kind of quality. So the, the, the buildings are huge, you know what I mean? And it felt like it was a good foundation for the, the first, you know, they don't go very high, but it gave us that first, you know, you know, 50, 60 feet that we could build on top of and extend. And of course, that's where Weta would come in and figure out what is that, that kind of, you know, grand design with the, with, that would fit into that world that we were shooting. You know what I mean? What I thought was remarkable about it, talking to the team at Weta, is how much they internally modelled rooms and stuff because yeah, it was going to be yeah. at night. You obviously lights on, you see in, right? And you really yeah. see in. And not only that, but I think that also comes down to it's one of those cases where it's like we have, I think, twenty six weeks of post. You know, so w- there are questions we don't even know to ask yet. So their approach usually is to have it prepared to do anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we talked about doing cards at first, you know, the kind of typical way of your building interiors doing cards. But I'm not sure exactly the specifics. Maybe Chris would have mentioned it, but they ended up going around this, this route of basically building all the interiors of every building, you know, which is crazy. <laughs> it's interesting because when we were talking before, you had come up on, I think, the second film with this great point that if you have bits of uh, cloth or plastic or whatever blowing in a, you know, a busted up building it looks yeah. it gives it scale in this one yeah. i felt the solution to scale was seeing stuff in the rooms right. i really felt like i was yeah, there's even even some of the shots you'll see people you know yeah. it's super subtle but they're there you know and people walking you know with papers or coffee or whatever it is it's like it's all over the place there and plus you know their, their render is fantastic you know and it's like as soon as you put some fluorescent lights in there and you're most of the city is at night um, you see those little reflections and, you know, it's just, it's good. You can feel the parallax. Even if you don't really see the parallax, I think you feel it with that, the true depth of those buildings and stuff, which is cool. Though so, talking about finding stuff in post, as it were, I understand you didn't exactly have a good idea what their uh, escape ship was going to look like from the 
ship graveyard and, and at the end. I, I hear that was one that was kind of <laughs> evolved. Oh, you mean like the, the boat, the boat yeah. itself outside? Yeah. You know, oddly enough, like we had this, that was one place in Vancouver that we had a fantastic location. Uh, there was this old ferry that was just rusting away and just docked on the middle of nowhere, kind of on the riverbank. And that was going to be our set. That was going to be our boat. And it was just so cool. Of course, when we moved to Cape Town, you know, oddly being in a, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a Cape Town, you know, it's like right next to the ocean. There were no ships. There was nothing that had that character to it. And so it was constantly, we were just searching to the end of the, you know, for months trying to find some boat that we could go and turn into, you know, this kind of charming little vessel. Um, we just never found it. And so we said, okay, we're going to have to do this CG, guys. <laughs> you know, so basically, yeah, all, the, all those shots with Barry, um, there's no green screen. It's just him against a blue sky. All those shots with Barry kind of giving his pitch and that ship in the background is full CG, which I think to me is fantastic. No one would question that. Of course, all the stuff on the horizon where you'd see, you know, wrecked ships and that kind of, you know, giant graveyard or rusty hulls. Um, of course, that would be, you know, CG. But uh, I think it was all really well done, you know, for what we knew was only going to be basically a scene, you know. Yeah, and talking to Weta, they thought the thing that really made the ship graveyard scene was the seagulls. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, uh, I'm sure they told you. They did. I threw that at them, you know, right at the last minute. It's like, it's just, it's one of those things. It's, it's your thing you're talking about. Like the plastic didn't it come from audio? Catching. Didn't you hear seagulls and go, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of where it started. It's like something was off. Something just felt like, okay, this is a matte painting. Or you know, There are no matte paintings in the movie, but um, it just felt, you know, lifeless somehow, you know? And so, you know, when I started hearing the sound of sound design from um, Eileen, who's our sound designer um, on all three movies, <laughs> she put birds in. I'm like, of course, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what you want. And you're on the coast, the fishing docks, you know, it's like, that's what we're missing is birds. And so I threw that at them at the last minute, unfortunately. And I think poor Chris had to run out on the beach and like throw, <laughs> throw bird feet out and just try to try to shoot some elements to put in there. And I think it makes a difference. You know, I think, I think you feel it, you know, it feels like it's just chaos that feels real and not like in that old kind of cliche way of, you know, some happy birds flying in the background to give you scale, you know, <laughs> which we've all done. It's true, but in a company that has Manuka, which is one of the most advanced uh, spectral renderers in history, that's literally, as I understand it, 5D Canon footage, uh, comped yeah, of real seagulls. Totally. Yeah, we, we we always pull some we always pull some kind of garage band stuff in all these movies. Just like there's iPhone recordings for ADR lines, and you know, it's fun to do that stuff. You know, you slip in these little tricks that are just old school. You know, it's cool. And because I watched to the very end of any credit, I noticed there was, in fact, a visual effects credit for Oddball at the very end. I understand. Hey, how about that? A couple <laughs> of shots, my friend. Yeah, barely. And honestly, I say every movie I do less and less. Like on the first movie, I had like 40 shots or something, you know, and I was doing some paint outs and, you know, just and not for any reason other than just I wanted to get my hands on there and actually say I did it. You know, it was just it was fun. And second movie, same thing. I did a couple here and there. And this one, I didn't do very many, but. You know, hey, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the thing I don't know what I mean, though, right? It's like no, it's totally. Like, it's kind of, I have a, I have a sort of I don't know romantic notion of still being a kind of effects artist, VFX artist, you know, and and I just want to hold on to that as long as I can. I think you did the drug effects. I, I never made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did some of that stuff, some treatment. Says on his third film. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, the other thing that I thought was uh, I, I thought worked really well. We thought it was really funny. We thought it was great. I was completely convinced it was a hundred percent planned. Um, but you've got to tell the story of what happened when the bus 
falls outside the oh, wall. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, there's this great gag with the bus that kind of gets lifted up. It's kind of a, a little mirror of what we set up in the very first opening scene. And this bus crashes down. And, you know, the, the kind of classic kind of gag is you think they're safe, but no, one more last little trick. The bus tips over and slams into the ground. And so, of course, we're going to do this for real. We found this incredible location, right? These docks that have like these huge walls where these big giant ships would come in to get worked on. And that's what we're going to use as a basis for our kind of wall. And so we had the room to go get a real bus, which was awesome, set it up on, on, on its hind end and just drop it. And just whatever happens, happens. And, um, and there's, of course, there's this sign that all buses have, which is like, you know, your next stop, you know, yada, 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 blue zone, whatever it is. And so what had happened is like once that bus is up, you know, and hanging there, you know, all the, all the tonnage of this thing by these giant cranes, no one's supposed to go around for safety. You don't go, you don't touch it. So what it means is that we have to go back into the signs and go ahead and, and program them to, you know, be ready for the next shot, whatever. So, of course, it used to always say, I think, red zone or blue zone um, and all the and all the takes. I knew eventually I was going to go to this sign and have it say out of out of service. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in the shot, it wasn't supposed to turn on because we had turned off all the power, of course, for the things. Um, but lo and behold, we dropped this bus and something shorted out in the battery and the switch. And that sign turned on when it wasn't supposed to. And, uh, and it just became this beautiful, perfect little spontaneous you know, touch. And, and it usually gets a laugh in the audience, you know, oh, because yeah. it's so perfectly timed. And that's totally real in camera. I think what it did a little cleanup because there was a little thing blocking the sign. But that was that was just one of the serendipitous <laughs> things that just kind of worked out. And, uh, you know, it's just like an act of God or something. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to have been on set and watch your face on the split when that happened because it... it uh... <laughs> yeah, I was like, no way. You know, it's like crazy. It was, it's like, you know, there's people would think there's like some guy on a switch, you know. Yeah. It just it hadn't really crossed my mind because I figured what was going to happen. I was in the next shot. As the dust was settling, I'd go up to the sign, it would turn on, and then I'd kind of reveal Brenda, which is kind of what happens. That was, that was the original plan. But yeah, it, uh, it just happened to be in that big shot because, you know, usually wouldn't want to plan all that. We had one take, you know, to do this in. That was it. Well, you and, didn't have uh, you half a dozen buses to drop. <laughs> exactly, right. We had three buses total in the movie and that kind of broke the budget. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like one of those compromises, right? And in hindsight, of course, it's the way to do it, you know, but I should have done it in CG or something. But you want to limit all your factors, right? That ruins a shot. So we just kind of took out all the things that would mess things up and just drop this damn thing and see what would happen, you know. So going back to where we started on this discussion about the fact that as as big as I think it looks, it literally wasn't like uh, a mega budget. Given the fact that you didn't pre-visit all to solve all the problems, I mean, can you offer some advice for somebody that might, or even yourself, if you could go back in time, like if you're going to try and make a film like this, that's going to have big scope, but like, what is it that you think of the sort of secret ingredients that allow that to get up on the screen and not be lost somewhere along the way? Because it clearly wasn't previous, but it wasn't, you know, luck alone, surely. Yeah. You know, it's tricky, Mike. I don't know, man. It's like, I imagine there's probably some element I've done three of these movies now there's a kind of visual language, I guess, that kind of comes pretty naturally to these movies. Like there are tricks in there that I just, I actually personally, I'm going to not do anymore because I'm tired of them, you know? Um, so I think some of it's just an instinctual thing, you know, it's like we know that big, that big wide shot, you know, I think there's probably an element of, I knew I want to do as few, few kind of shots um, in the movie. I want to do as few edits. So you'll see there's a lot of kind of unbroken cameras in this. 
Um, yeah. So I think that's the combination of those things is what led to that. You know, and, and Jula, my, my DP, that he was on with me on the second movie as well. Yeah. I think we both have this kind of eye for you know big scope stuff, but I think also um, the locations tell you a lot, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, you get inspired when you get out to these places. Like I'm thinking about them, you know, on the ridgetop looking over the, the city for the first time. And it's like, you just felt it the way the mountains were on the horizon and the trees were up there. You wanted to be low and wide, you know, and then stay in that shot as you kind of, you know, it, so it's like, you kind of get inspired and you kind of look for those opportunities to make something that feels big, you know, and, and it was definitely a convert, uh, for the first couple days of shooting, Jewel and I had the luxury to kind of go to the dailies room and watch it on the screen, right? And we even told ourselves while we were shooting, this is a little bit too close. We need to get a little further back. You know, we, we're making a movie here, not a TV show, you know? So there was always this kind of constant thing in the back of our mind of trying to make it feel bigger, you know? Um, but in terms of the, the previous thing, it's like, I don't know, it's like it still comes down to communication, right? The, the departments need to know what they need to plan for. You know, so usually it comes down to, you know, we go out location scouting. It's like, just focus on this area. Don't worry about back here. You know, and that just comes, we kind of, we kind of know, you know? So and that's kind of the beauty, I think, of having a, a crew now for most of the way now has been, you know, the same guys that we've worked with now. So that, that, that's pretty cool. So what sort of films would you like to make next? I'm not saying what are you making. I'm just saying like what, you know, you've, you've clearly uh, been successful here. So, what is it? Is this your signature, or is this uh, just no. this chapter? Yeah, this is just this chapter for sure. I wasn't actually originally planning to do all three. I was going to do the first movie and move on. You know, truth be told, it's like I I didn't have a strong connection to the the subsequent books after the first one, so I didn't really think I was going to be the guy to do those books. Um, but when I was asked, you know, I don't want to say it was a sense of obligation because it's not true. I, I love working with these actors and, and, it, and it's fun to kind of dip into this, this universe. Um, but it was, it did surprise me that I, I was going to do the second one. And then once we did the second one, I knew we would start planning for the third one too. So we could start setting ourselves up, you know, and then by that point you're kind of pregnant, you know, and it's like, mm. I want to see this scene that we're talking about while we're doing movie two, I want to see that scene. I want to do that scene for part three, you know, that kind of stuff. There's like key shots in, in this movie that, that I had come up with four years ago. You know what I mean? Um, so, so yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I haven't been in this position before where, you know, in each of these movies, I've, I've basically been asked to do the next one and start right away. So while we're editing and finishing the, the, the first one, we're, we're basically prepping the next movie already. So, this is the first time where I'm in a position now where I don't have exactly know what is next, you know, uh, which is cool. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly obviously super thankful for, you know, having all these opportunities. It's been like a dream come true, but I'm also kind of, I'm kind of ready to move on to other subject matter, you know, um, probably stuff that's, that's, you know, these movies are, are definitely catered to a, to a particular audience. I'd like to do something a little more broad, you know, probably something bigger. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds of this, actually. Like the, the one hand, I'd be nice to do something that's either, you know, something that's sci-fi, fantasy, you know, world creation, escapist, you know, entertainment stuff. There's something really fun about doing that stuff. Um, and, and like you said, scope and scale and making stuff for a big movie theater. Um, there's also something about doing something really small next, you know. Um, I got the impression that you big. really enjoyed 
working with the actors as in finding the space, like those interior scenes in the lab and stuff, like I, I felt like, as I said, they weren't just sequences that were getting us to the next bit of plot development. I, I was curious. I thought maybe you'd want to actually do something that was much more drama narrative with just the oh, actors. Yeah. Um, oh, not- yeah. And I think, you know, I think, it, you know, it kind of shows. I mean, we can be honest. It's like, you know, the, the books are, you know, they're, they're written for a very young audience. Yeah, sure. so there's not a, necessarily a lot of they're there um, for a sort of kind of a, 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 I don't know, a very adult oriented drama or something. But these actors that I have, I think are really good actors. I think they're mm. really, really talented people and they're very young, of course, but, uh, but I think they're, they're fantastic. And, and not just the young people, but the old, older kind of, you know, actors that came in on board too, or just, they're, they're great actors. And it's fun when you give them some, even just a, a hint of something to really chew on it's so fun to watch, you know, as they kind of make these things feel real. Um, and I really personally really enjoy that stuff. That was a kind of discovery for me on the first movie where I felt you know, loosely comfortable with the set piece stuff and action stuff and the VFX stuff. But I was always kind of surprised with these little quiet scenes that I kind of felt like were just, oh, this is going to be filler. But somehow the actors kind of gave it something so much more. So I would love to do something simple. You know, I still, I still need a hook. I, I need something that you know, it feels different. It feels like there's a reason for it to be seen in a theater, you know. Um, but, but yeah, that, there's something, there's something very appealing about doing something like that where it's, it's, it's pure directing, you know what I mean, I guess, and not so much, um, you know, franchise or, you know, set piece driven, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to conceive of any film these days. It wouldn't have some visual effects in it, but, um, but yeah, being able to, being able to have the beats to work on the subtext, which, you know, as I say, I think you got a bunch of stuff in here more than, you know, uh, one could reasonably, if you didn't, you know, know the right. stuff, guess for. Right. But, uh, and, you know, there are some really, uh, you know, I mean, as you say, like uh, fry pans stuff in this film. It's really good, right? Like it's really right. good, right. good acting. But, um, but yes, I, I think that uh, you obviously... Uh, the, the benefit of having that up your sleeve in terms of visual effects is that you can then maybe tell those stories and uh, and not have to worry about the... Yeah, and that's probably the one benefit, right, of having sort of any kind of experience with these things and, and that uh, that you know how to hopefully use these tools uh, not as a crutch, right? You know, and you sort of, you're not in that place where it's like, uh, shoot something and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you end up with these shots that just feel like these Frankenstein shots that are trying yeah. to accomplish something that wasn't designed for, yeah. you know? So th- if there's anything that I think I hopefully have is some element of understanding how to use the tools, you know what I mean? Hopefully in, in a way that sort of um, comes from a, a place of expertise, you know? When I was talking to Sue, who's obviously now at uh, Sony, but when she was uh, on your first film, she said the only trouble was you'd be halfway through some sequence and you'd turn to her and say, I'm really sorry because I know you're going to have to have people rotoing that. And she'd be like, don't worry about it. And so I bothered right. to check in with Weta on this third film and I said, is he still doing that? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I know. It's crazy, you know. It's like, and, and I have, again, I kind of, you know, I've let go a little bit. The one thing with, with Lawrence, you know, and his nose, like, okay, I don't need tracking markers anymore. Thanks, guys. Yeah. You know, and then second would be there's some roto stuff in this that was really impressive. You know, I mean, it's just really impressive, actually. There's some stuff with Teresa um, at the very end, this kind of climax with her. Mm. And the stuff they did around her hair is unbelievable. Now, I mean, I think if, if say, you and I really looked at it and just looped that shot over and over again, maybe we'd notice. 
but in the context of the movie, it's it's stunning that they actually can pull some of this stuff off. Um, and I think some of it's paint back in, and some of it's just pure roto. But it's it's a it's a fantastic thing, you know. And I'm kind of interested to to explore that more because I think we'd all love to lose green screens. You know what I mean? <laughs> we'd all love to just shoot. Yeah. and not have to deal with that stuff. Um, as solid yeah. as it is in this film, I, the film that knocked me off was when Weta started doing the uh, paint out of actors riding on horses' backs, going uh-huh. through water in stereo for the yeah, second stunning. Apes film. And I was like, that is just beyond physical ability to roto. But sure enough, they did yeah. it. Yeah, no, um, it's crazy, man. Yeah, we have some crazy stuff in this thing where it just blows my mind, like, you know, full hand replacements and, you know, just crazy stuff, you know? It's like, I just, that's Weta. They're fantastic. Yeah, no, no, it's good. But again, thanks for taking time. Uh, to, yeah, man. Uh, it's like a tradition now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll let you Movies. go, my friend. Thank you so much. Cool. Pleasure talking. Well, thanks, Wes, for taking the time to chat with us once again. And thanks for... Uh all your help in getting us uh, cool stuff for articles on our site related to films. Be sure to check Effects Guide for written articles. We are going to have a written article going along with this podcast as well. And I think there are going to be some interesting things in that article that you haven't seen anywhere else. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for taking time again to download and listen to this podcast. For Mike Seymour and Jeff Huser, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.